It's a first for the Timbers! I'm just so proud of this team. One game, one expert, and then on to the next one. I'm Richard Farley, and this is the Post Match Podcast. Finally, Copa America is over, and I can get back to doing this show on a regular basis. I really miss doing this because as I was on the road, or not on the road, just in Portland and recovering from the last three weeks of work, I really missed getting online and talking to my friends and then editing the show and getting it online and interacting with people online because that whole process since I started doing this impromptu show a couple months ago has been incredibly rewarding from getting back to trying to be better at podcasting to meeting up with friends in and around Portland sometimes audio quality be damned to reaching out to friends that I hadn't really talked to in a long time and talking to them multiple times over the last couple months it's been a good way to keep in touch but with Copa America and the responsibilities of the day job upon me these last three weeks or so, as you've noticed, we haven't been able to have that many pods. So this week, we already had one out. Hopefully, you've listened to it. The podcast before this one featured Goal.com's John Arnold taking inventory of the Mexican national team's performance at Copa America. And more importantly, as it concerns El Tree, talking about where they go now after their dramatic 7 nothing loss in the quarterfinals of that tournament to Chile. As we talk about at the beginning of this one, John and I take a totally different approach to the U.S. men's national team because the individual games seem to matter more. Because what you think about how they performed against Colombia the first and the second time, or how they performed over that three-match winning streak that got them to Copa America's semifinals, that dictates whether you think this tournament was a success or not. And as it concerns the U.S. men's national team, it probably dictates how you see the direction of the program the suitability of the player pool, and whether Jurgen Klinsmann should be in charge of all of those things. So continuing on from our conversation that we started with a lot last podcast, here's myself and John Arnold talking about the U.S. men's national team and where they stand after a fourth place finish at Copa America Centenario. All right. Speaking of switching coaches, let's switch to the United States. And uh, oh, really? Is there, was there news? <laughs> there, there has there hasn't been news yet. In fact, Southampton looks like they're going to hire somebody else, so we can stop talking about that. Um, the United States is different because whereas Mexico had this one tournament defining performance that overshadowed everything, with the United States, it really depends on which of these games or which of these stretches you look at. The Columbia game to open the tournament, a loss where people disagree as to whether Columbia just got a penalty kick and a set piece and rode out that lead or the United States was legitimately bad. The three decent games for the United States and then two performances or one and a half performances where they decided to look worse than their South American competition. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the American Soccer Now podcast, but now that you're not in the host seat, I get to turn the tables on you. Uh, <laughs> give me your overall evaluation of where you think the U.S. stands at the end of this six-game run. It's a little complicated because, to me, I, I never expected them to make the semifinals. And as yeah, I just... Yeah, let's frame it like that because you and I talked... Last time we had this podcast, we kind of talked after I hit stop. And we both kind of agreed on, the, I think, on the quality of the U.S. We thought they weren't that great. I thought they would get out of their group in second place. You didn't. I think we just had a disagreement on the quality of the opposition, basically. Yeah. But I think over the course of the tournament, they pretty much were the team that we thought they would be. Yeah, exactly. No, that's the thing is it's like... 
I think it's impressive that they made the semifinals. And even though I just said if Mexico had that same route, they would have done the same, it doesn't matter because Mexico did it and the U.S. did. You know, you can only play who's in front of you, et cetera, et cetera. And they did and they won the games that they needed to win. And, and while I've had a lot of friends say, like, man, it was really embarrassing to lose to Argentina 4-0, I think most people who watch, watched Argentina during the tournament, you know, most of us, us soccer nerds, you listening to this podcast, you know, probably recognize the quality that Argentina had. So, like... They did what they they did as well as they could have, I think. But with that said, when you look at the performances, it's the same thing. Like there's nothing new from this team. You know, it wasn't like the Copa America Centenario taught us anything uh, that we didn't know about the U.S. Maybe other than that, they can get a result in a quarterfinal. I guess. Like I, I don't know. I just don't feel like we learned anything about the team. I don't feel like it showed anything that new. It was uh, an opportunity for us to see. What having it's it's weird because and I wrote about this on goal actually Osorio I think is right to do his rotations that's his plan that's what he wants to do and he wants to analyze the opponent and and kind of change out players and put them in their best places where he thinks they're going to succeed I think he has the depth to do that Jurgen Klinsmann doesn't so I think you have to have consistency and when they're able to play the same back four you know when they're able to play the same entire team right. Um, in those three group games, I think that was was really, really good for them to mature a little bit, to understand each other. And you saw it all fall apart when, A, they faced a much more difficult opponent, but B, they were missing three players that you would have to say were uh, among the three most important players for the U.S. And, and, right. and Guzan had a terrible half. Right. I mean, so I think, should, should you be optimistic because the United States made the semifinals of the tournament? No. Should you be optimistic because of how the United States played during the tournament? No, but should you be optimistic about the potential of the U.S. to kind of come together a little bit more and look a little more solid ahead of qualifying, you know, ahead of a hex that, that won't be too easy and look better than they did going into the tournament? Yes. Now, that's, that's a lot of qualifiers, but I, I think it makes sense. At least no. it does in my mind, and I hope it does uh, coming out of my mouth as well. I, it makes perfect sense in a way that I hadn't thought about before. The ability to handle a game against a quality Ecuador team at home in a way where you're never really in danger of dropping points, and to see out a 1-0 victory over Paraguay where you lost a man early, and to beat Costa Rica at home. If you play like that during the Hex, you're going to be fine. You might even win the Hex, because yeah. that's the level of team that you're going to play in the Hex, and to either comfortably beat them or against Paraguay, handle the challenges that are thrown your way, and still come out with three points, That when you isolate those three results, that's incredibly encouraging when you're talking about World Cup qualifying. And part of it too is that like now these players are in better club situations than they were. And I'm not saying like at more prestigious clubs. I'm saying like pretty much everyone who was in the starting level for the United States was getting minutes at their club. And playing and getting regular playing time and getting regular games and, and stuff like that. And that's something we haven't always seen. Like even in 2013 in World Cup qualification, like some of the players who were starting, if I remember correctly, you know, I mean, obviously Altidore wasn't in a great situation then. Jeff Cameron, we were asking about, you know, oh, you're yeah. playing at this position, but now you're playing at this position. You know, we were asking him about that. I mean, and there were some other guys who, you know, just very clearly like needed to make moves. There weren't really that many, you know, I wasn't really around the U.S. team because I was covering Mexico, but there's not many of that transfer questions lingering other than maybe Guzan and, and maybe one or two other, you know, like a, like a Steve Birnbaum who was like, oh, maybe he's going to go to Europe. Whereas like in previous summer tournaments, it's been like, oh, is this guy going to move? Because he's not getting time. So I think, I think that's something where like, okay, everyone was in pretty decent club situations. And I think that helps because they, they do come in in pretty good form. So I guess like all that to say, I think this team 
man to man to man to man, when you look at them one by one, most players are in better positions than they have been in the past. And maybe that's what I'm trying to get at in that, you know, I think collectively this team looks about the same, but maybe the sum of its parts is even greater than it is there was before. Mm. So like maybe that collectively helps you in qualifying. So I want to talk about the specific positions or at least levels on the field. But the one thing that I find interesting, if not outright compelling, is the idea that the results just aren't on the same level as they've been under past managers. And of course, people want to frame it like that because they're trying to evaluate Klinsman. But the game that the United States lost to Argentina 4-0, in the past, the U.S. has been able to compete with Argentina and, and beat them, or at least not look this bad. And you can say the same thing about games against Spain. Of course, 2009 comes out, Brazil, when Casey Keller's standing on his head. Uh, but people do point to those games as examples of where the U.S. can at least show a level of fight and earn some respect that they didn't earn against Argentina. Now, to a certain extent, I think that is, it's a little bit weird, and I think it really minimizes the role that Brad Guzon had in having a bad game and framing the Argentina game the way it is. But on the other hand, I I do recognize there is a degree of fairness because the performance that we saw against Argentina did feel different than the performances that we saw under previous managers. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, it's also, it kind of gets into those weird, like, intangible things, like, you know, against the, you know, Spain Confederations Cup, it's like, ah, what guts. It's like, how do we, you know, like, does this team have guts? Like, I guess they do. Oh, man, like that show. You remember that show? No, I don't. On, Wait, no. It just... On Nickelodeon? I, this might oh, be a demographic yes, yes, thing. yes, yes, yes. No. Do, 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 do you have I... it? And they're, like, all playing sports games? Yes, I remember it now, yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think like it is fair to look back and look forward, but it's also here's the thing, and this is I think every time we talk about national teams, which we do all the time, we're talking around this fact that it's very difficult to evaluate national teams for a couple of reasons. One, the sample size is incredibly small. Like we just don't have that many games. National teams don't play together that much, and, and national teams don't play games that matter hardly at all. Did this tournament matter? Yeah, somewhat. But even then, it's like, eh, it's like kind of a fake tournament. Like Chile, even if they hadn't won, would still be the Copa America champion. They'd still be going to like the Confederations Cup as the Comebol representative. So games that really matter are few and far between. So it's very difficult to evaluate. The second thing is we don't really have much to compare it against. You know. It's difficult to say if Jurgen Klinsmann had approached that game differently, would the result have been any different? Well, we can never know that, and we don't know. I mean, so I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, when you compare those games, it is fair. Of course, you're going to compare those games against previous similar games, games where the U.S. was able to have more success. But I mean, I think we could also probably go back and find games where the U.S. was sort of embarrassed or sort of humbled, yeah. you know, in the past. No, so the, the Brazil game after the 2010 World Cup, people forget that uh, it was the game. I believe it was in New Jersey, and Brazil just embarrassed the United States. It was like four to nothing or four to one. Omar Gonzalez looked terrible. Neymar, who uh, hadn't played a big part in the 2010 World Cup, just tore up the United States. And nobody remembers that because we just didn't have any expectations on that game. I mean, and pl- you know, even like, okay, the Confederations Cup final, like, yes, we, you know, that was a proud moment for the United States national team. But at the same time, like, they also, you know, gave away the lead and lost. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I guess it's, it's, and yes, that team was gutsy as well. That team triumphed as well, but you know, they only got so far. And so it's, it's, it's difficult. But like I said, I mean, I think every nation is doing that. You know, Argentina right now, I just, I just read and wrote up uh, Diego Maradona talking about Messi and he said, you know, oh, well, you know, we lost to Chile twice and they're no Netherlands 1974. 
And it's like, well, I guess, like, I don't know. How do you compare the 2016 Chile team to, like, the 1974 <laughs> Netherlands team, which, you know, was a World Cup runner-up and had, like, you know, so... But it's also it's also an example of how you know, skewed the conversations around national teams get because Argentina actually didn't lose any either of those games to Chile. They lost in shootouts, which, on one hand, people want to say are random and require luck, and those are exaggerations on one hand. And on the other hand, they want to say they constitute defeats. Actually, these teams seem pretty even to the point where twice they've had to be settled on penalty kicks. It's just both times they've gone against Argentina, and Argentina hasn't won a major trophy in 23 years, and they've got Messi and blah, 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 blah. Man, you remember 2014-4-1 loss to Ireland in Dublin? That was ugly. <laughs> yeah, that was that was bad. Yeah, you're right. That's true. Uh, but uh, it kind of ties into your thing about like just small sample sizes. We don't get to see them that often. And then also the conversation gets so fueled around national teams in our country in a different way than in other countries. But as we're seeing with England's loss to Ireland today, it's just completely irrational. The response to that. Iceland. Iceland. Oh, that's right. Iceland. Sorry. Thank you. 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 you well, your your R cut off. You needed to keep drawing it. <laughs> no, you you had my mind on on uh, Ireland. I actually almost said. Iceland right there too, but I'm glad glad you corrected that. Um, well, yeah, the funny thing is that the English would have accepted a loss to Iceland, uh, Ireland more than they would have right. accepted a loss oh, to Ireland, even yeah. though Iceland's probably the better team of those two. Right. Um, right. But anyways, with the national team, especially the conversation in this country, and it tied into what you were talking about with Costa Rica, where everybody had such high uh, expectations of Costa Rica and Colombia, because a lot of these people that are entering back into the conversation right now only remember what happened in Brazil. And yeah. the time between now and then, Brazil said both of those teams are much weaker. So now you got people coming into the conversation, and they're trying to evaluate the U.S., and they're evaluating it against very distinct moments in time. The dis- distinct moments I mentioned, b- defeating Argentina 21 years ago, or Casey Keller's performance against Brazil, or the 2009 Spain. But as we've talked about, there are, there are big losses to Ireland mixed in there, and there are <laughs> b- embarrassing performances against Brazil. So maybe we're buying into it by spending this much time talking about it. Let's talk about some of the players i think we got a goalkeeping problem with the united states i don't think we have a number one goalkeeper right now uh to what extent do you agree with that uh yeah yes and no because i think yes it's certainly true that neither guzan nor howard although we'll see i guess how howard plays with the rapids but he's you know 2018 mm, i don't know i mean we've we said i think for a long time ah that's guzan's year and a he needs a club right now um, and B, he needs to get better. Um, I'm not sure what happened. I was surprised at how much he struggled this tournament. I really didn't think the kind of the Premier League malaise would, would carry over, um, but it kind of looked like it did. You know, you mentioned how big of a role or, or how little of a role he was able to play, how much of a how much of a problem he was against Argentina, maybe. Um, and where's the next crop? You know, it's always been Bill Hamid's son, Sean Johnson, Sean Johnson, Bill Hamid, but, you know, Hamid seems to be continually injured. Johnson has never seemed to be the same after that uh, unfortunate, you know, air in the uh, U23, the Olympic qualification. I, I don't mm. think that moment broke him or anything like that, but I wonder if maybe, um, you know, he had difficulty overcoming that and he's never really been as good as maybe, um, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann wanted him to become. You know, Ethan Horvath looks great. Are you going to have a 22 or 23 year old starter in Russia? That seems pretty, you know, at goalkeeper, that seems like a real, you know, I doubt it, right? Like, I doubt that's going to happen. There are other options. You know, you look at like a Steve Clark. Um, you know, there's other players in MLS who yeah. maybe could could step in and fill the role. You could you could try again on on Jesse Gonzalez. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, there's, there are these other these other maybe candidates. You know, I don't think 
goalkeeping in general in the U.S. is an issue. But like you said, I don't know that there's a standout guy like there has been for so, so long. I mean, when's the last time that there's been a question mark uh, going into a World Cup about goalkeeper? I mean, not when it's not like a Friel versus Keller kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like a who is it? There's ne- No, there's never been. Because even going back to when we uh, we when the U.S. first qualified in 90 again, we knew who the goalkeeper was going to be there. Uh, we knew who the goalkeeper was going to be in 94 and, and so on and so forth. And like you said, the only controversy is whether... The, the particular manager that is sitting there now happens to prefer Friedel or Keller. So um, this is unique because I don't think we have right now anybody that's performing to that level. Yeah. And, and you mentioned a lot of guys who could get to that point, but do you sacrifice Guzan's time in the team to try to cultivate a Hamid or a Horvath? I think so much of it comes down, and I just said pretty much no one, but I did say except Guzan has like a club problem. I think he needs to move. I, I don't want to say toxic because I don't actually know about like the Aston Villa locker room or anything, but like any time that, that things go that poorly, I think it's a bad situation. I talked to him a little bit actually uh, before the tournament, Guzan, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, of course he said kind of the standard like, well, I'm just putting that behind me and like moving on and like hopefully this will be an opportunity to like get back on the right side of things. It didn't really go like that, but I mean, I think he's only 31 for a goalkeeper, I mean, he mm-hmm. certainly has time to bounce back. And, I mean, we've seen him perform well in the past. So I'm not so ready to – and I'm not saying this is what you're doing either, but I'm not ready to just totally uh, scrap him and say that he's not you know, he's not good enough to be the 2018 World Cup goalkeeper. But I think a lot of it depends on how he comes into qualification and how he comes into the next tournament. And I think a lot of that depends on where does he end up. Can he find a place where he's the number one and he can start to regain that confidence, get back in form, maybe not get pelted with so many shots um, because he was just a, you know, it was a firing range on Aston Villa this year. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if he can find a good situation, maybe he can start to get back to the form that we'd expect from a U.S. goalkeeper, um, you know, heading into a World Cup where we've seen performances like the ones we've seen. Yeah, this is going to be probably the biggest question of the 2017 Gold Cup. Uh, which of these goalkeepers that gets brought in ends up winning the job if they do bring in a full that's the biggest goalkeeper. question? Well, when we go through the rest of the team, I think we have... We have, right, fewer, we'll, we'll, we'll we have fewer questions. I won't, I won't crush you. I won't, cr- I won't crush you. No, no, no. I, I think that's reasonable because I think that there, there isn't a lack of questions throughout the team, but you look at Stryker, which has been a question. That's, over the last that's my years. question. I think we're, that's Bobby less Wood. of a question now because of Bobby Wood. And if anything, there's some depth there that we haven't had before where we've got Wood and then when he's healthy, uh, Josie Altidore. And not only that, yeah. because of Wood's status in the Bundesliga now, you can make a reasonable case that this guy is positioning himself to push Josie Altidore to the bench where he yeah. might be a better, more effective player for the, the team. Well, and actually, now that, I, you know, now that I bring that up, it's like, you know, also, there's no MLS forward, like, tearing it up, who, like, the manager, you know, turned into this sensation and totally ignored for this tournament. Like, that, that's not a right. situation that happened. But if it were, like, you could bring that guy as well. Now, I think the other forward, or whether it's going to be a forward or an attacking midfielder that has to support a forward, is the bigger question because we see Clint Dempsey in this tournament. He turns around his kind of languid MLS play, and he was one of the better players for the U.S. during this tournament. And he deserves all that credit, but we we need to approach Clint Dempsey's future with skepticism because for about the last year at club level, hasn't really actually been that good. A couple of camps didn't get called in because Jurgen either wanted to look at other guys or just give Clint a break. Now he comes back in, he reestablishes his importance, but he's 33 years old and he seems to be fully into that last phase of his career and there's just no nobody else that can play like that supporting forward role. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you write languid down or that just come out of your... What happened? You wrote, you said the word languid? Like languid, languid form? Yeah. yeah. Did you write that down or that just came out of your head? <laughs> that just came out of my mouth. I'm impressed, man. I'm impressed. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because I... After the World Cup, 
I was of the opinion that the U.S. should probably... I think it's very easy to have this posture, so I'm a little embarrassed that I did, but I, I was kind of the one of the people who was saying, youth movement time, like, throw all these guys out, get, get Jermaine Jones out of here, get Tim Howard out of here, get Clint Dempsey out of here. These guys are done. They're not going to help you in 2018. you got to move on. And then they announced the Copa America Centenario was going to happen, and of course, then we didn't know what the FIFA world would look like, and so mm-hmm. we had no reason to believe that it wasn't going to happen, which, of course, we know it did. But I was like, okay, perfect. This is the tournament. No matter what happens after this tournament, those guys can do, you know, have a nice international retirement, et cetera, et cetera. Not an unfounded view based on some of the rumors we've heard over the last year. Right. But <laughs> but now, you know, when you go into the tournament and when, as you said, Clint Dempsey, I think for me, Clint Dempsey was probably the second best player in the tournament for the U.S. after John Brooks. Yeah, that's reasonable. I just think that John Brooks made so many isolated mistakes that were not consistent with the rest of his form that I have to just kind of ding him down for that. So you think, I mean, so Clint Dempsey was the best player for you. Yeah, but I can see how somebody who evaluates defenders differently could reasonably disagree sure. with that. No, I'm just saying, I mean, he, so we, we're, we're saying he's either the first to the second best yeah, player definitely. and that's someone who you want to be at the gold cup next year and you want to be in russia if he's you know if he's able to go and you want him in qualification so i mean i think you know with dempsey it's always been you know he doesn't fit into a nice little box that would be no. ideal for like a national team um but that's the beauty of international soccer is that like you don't have that option you know you have to kind of play with these parts and kind of tweak and see what happens so i think if he's playing with as as well as he he did for the U.S. in this tournament, and, you know, who knows? We've seen him have not falling outs with Jurgen before, but, you know, he and Klinsman don't always seem to have been the best of friends. Who knows? Maybe something happens and, and he's not on future rosters, but I think as long as he is producing like he was in this tournament, you got to put him on the field, and they've made it work before, and they'll, they'll make it work again. So, I mean, I think, yeah, you know, Bobby Wood up top, second striker Dempsey, I'm still a believer that Altidore could emerge as a totally, not only serviceable, but totally, you know, quality international player mm-hmm. if he can overcome some of the injuries. I know that's a big question. I know that really hasn't happened. But look, I mean, it's funny because we're not even talking about him in this discussion. You know, you, you mentioned him and I mentioned him, but like, you know, it seems like they could move on without him. But at the same time, he's probably going to be, when it's all said and done, like the U.S. all-time leading goal scorer and just, you know, a player who like, you look back and you're like, oh, I didn't really realize that he was playing for that long just because he's been a fixture already and he's only 26. So Yeah, and, and I would hate for them to ha- to move on without him or elect to because he's such a distinct physical presence that whether he's only coming off the bench or he has to replace somebody who's been suspended, he's somebody the opposition always has to account for. Um, the only other thing I really want to talk about is Michael Bradley because I, mm. I kind of feel like we're at the point where some of the Michael Bradley criticism that has been pretty ill-founded over the last five or six years, I think based a lot on people generally overrating Michael Bradley. Now we're getting a little bit closer to where Michael Bradley's effectiveness, I think, is a legitimate question. I just wonder if Michael Bradley's place right now is because of the quality he brings as a player or just the sure lack of other options that we reasonably have in that position. I, I don't think somebody like Perry Kitchen is anywhere close to being as good as even a below-average Michael Bradley. Yeah, I would agree with you that I think the criticism has gone from unfounded to founded. I mean, um, in the in 2013 World Cup qualification, I really thought that Michael Bradley was going to be the best American player that ever ever walked the earth. He's yeah. look just because of our options, he's still up there. Um, but I think that a lot of his game during during that cycle and and even in the kind of following years was kind of a you know, security blanket, make safe passes, make good passes, and, and occasionally make that incisive pass that when it came off was really impressive. Um, 
I, I don't know. I think he has slipped from then. And there's a couple, you know, you could offer a couple different theories. Why was it the move to MLS? Is it players around him not being as good? Is he trying to do too much? Is he, you know, is it still like a, Hey, Jermaine Jones is not doing what he needs to be doing situation. I don't know. I, I was disappointed to see Danny Williams not on. I was very um, disappointed. I thought the he had a really roster. Good year. Yeah, yeah. I I don't. I weirdly, um, I weirdly got uh, into Redding like years and years ago, and and yeah, he, I thought he was really good for Redding this year. I think he's a player who, you know, gives you a lot both defensively and going forward. Um, who I don't see the argument for Kitchen over him. No, 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 not Kitchen, and I don't think, like, I mean, I know he wasn't on the roster, but, like, Alfredo Morales, no. Yeah. You know, you look at, like, an Emerson Hindman or even, like, uh, uh, Kalos Stanko or somebody, like, who these, like, kind of the next generation coming through, um, maybe one of those two guys. And, of course, like, we've always talked about, oh, what if Will Trapp kind of becomes, like, the, the partner with Bradley? Um, wouldn't that be something? You know, it's the same situation with the Diego Reyes, to kind of bring it back to our Mexico discussion, where it's, like, if these players can prove that they have become better than Michael Bradley, then great. But as you said, Richard, I mean, I don't think like, I don't think Perry Kitchen at his best day right now is better than like sixty percent good Michael Bradley. Yeah, Perry Kitchen seems like on a track to me to be like a guy who ends up with thirty caps, but most of them are on off cycle goal cups. Um, I think the other thing Which with like I've advocated for like getting rid of. So yeah, I think the other thing with like a player like Trap and Bradley is that we don't. We don't stop and realize kind of like where they are in their physical age cycles. Like Will Trap at this point is 23 years old. He physically is in his prime at this point. And given how American players develop, I think it's reasonable to say that there's probably a later performing for American players. But Will Trap is at the point where he's getting to be pretty much what he is as a player. So if we're thinking, okay, if we get Will Trap in and he can improve... I don't really know that there's a lot of improvement right. left in Will Trap. Now, Michael, well, yeah. oh, go, ahead, go ahead before I go uh, move on to Bradley. I was going to say, especially with a guy like him, like, you know, a lot of times I think we've attributed to, oh, like, these players played college soccer, like, maybe they won't be, you know, they need a couple more years to polish where, like, on the international level they don't. And, and even though Will Trap played at Akron, like, he's been in the system for a really long time. Yeah, that's, that's the thing with him. He's not just a pure college player. He's been on no. kind of the hybrid track. Now, right. whereas Michael Bradley, not a college player, went over to Europe reasonably early, spent most of his career there, has all those miles on him, and he's at the point where he's turning 29 here in a month. He's might be at the point where, with his 121 caps to his name too, he might be exiting his prime. That might be the most reasonable uh, explanation for why Michael Bradley is starting to tail off. And if that's the case, then it becomes a matter of how quickly he tails off. Now, Clint Dempsey, we're seeing, we're seeing him tail off now. He kind of extended his prime a bit. Maybe he was one of those players that did benefit from uh, staying in college and having uh, some lighter MLS demands back in the days when MLS wasn't <laughs> such a jam-packed schedule. Um, maybe he's been able to extend his prime into 31-32, but maybe now he's also falling off a cliff. How, how steep is Bradley's cliff going to be? Because... They're just there's just not another option there, and it's a little bit scary. No, uh, but I don't know that he has that big of a drop off coming. I mean, I think that he's a very I don't want to say cerebral because everyone says cerebral, but like I think he's a smart player, and I think that not quite in the way of Marquez because I'm not sure that he is as versatile as Rafa Marquez. But I yeah. I think that in the same way that we were talking about, like he knows where to be, he knows the pass to make. I think Michael Bradley can can manage that as well. You know, maybe his career doesn't extend to 37 years old, but I think that he's a player who can can kind of maybe have some of his intelligence paper over the cracks of of falling out of physical 
form, um, not being at his prime, as you said. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think he's made as much of a, you know, put his stamp on the game as much as you'd want him to, as much as we'd seen him do in 2013, 2014. He certainly hasn't looked good in the past two summer tournaments. So, I mean, I, I do wonder if, you know, if the calendar switch affected him or what exactly happened, because I, I think that the summer has been really poor for him, whereas, you know, with, with Toronto, he's been, you know, better outside of the, the summertime when the U.S. has needed him to be good. So I don't, I don't think he's going to fall off a cliff. I think we're going to see maybe a slower, a slower progression, yeah. uh, maybe a gradual easing down instead of a, a total drop off. Uh, we can talk about Nagby and Pulisic. I really don't want to because everybody's covered those so much. And uh, I, there are people. Yeah, out there. We, let's just be the boring show. Because <laughs> yeah. they're fun and exciting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's the thing is like, ooh, fun, like new, exciting. Uh. You know, being here in Portland, I kind of alluded to this on your podcast, is that, you know, you get to see the good Darlington games and the bad Darlington games. And there's a reason that this guy has only 23 assists in six years in MLS. It's because he he's not somebody that creates a ton of chances for people, for all the skill that he has. I think he's a great number eight, though, but that only feeds into the Bradley conversation. It's like, okay, well, he's a central midfielder, but we still don't have somebody that in the future is going to sit behind those guys. So that'll be interesting. Uh, maybe Jeff Cameron can move up there in time. I don't know. Cameron's, That's a, sure. Cameron's a, two years older than Bradley, so I don't know what I'm, what I'm right, saying. Right, and you don't really, and I think you like, now that you finally have him as an established center back, I think maybe you want to keep that together as long as you can. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing too. Like if Bradley settles into a role that's more consistent with like, you know, you kind of described a maturation that maybe reminded me of like a Paul Scholes type of player where somebody that was a little bit more of a space eater and attacker earlier and then settles back. Okay, that's great. But who are the James Main Joneses that are going to eat up space in front of him? Because if we end up with like a Nagby Bedoya midfield in front of a Bradley that needs to serve as more of a pure sitter and a distributor, is that going to be enough? I, I don't know. Maybe the numbers alone are enough. But I want to play this little game with you, John, that I just thought of by looking at this roster sheet in front of me. It's who has more, <laughs> it's who has more caps. I'm going to give you two, S, two U.S. Oh, men's national no. team players, and you have to tell me which of the two has more caps. Okay. All right. Jeff Cameron or Brad Guzon? Jeff Cameron. Brad Guzon has four more caps than Cameron. He's okay. Yeah, please And please also continue to give me the closest possible, so it's just a total toss-up. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Okay. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go next one. Okay. I, I and, asked... then next, and then after this, we'll do it with Guatemala. <laughs> yes, because my Guatemala knowledge is consistent with your U.S. knowledge. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying you. I, you. I was gonna make. I was gonna make myself play again. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Giassi Zardes or Chris Wondolowski? Okay. Now I know Zardes was the most capped player in 2015. Did he do enough to make up the gap? Did he do enough to make up the gap? Wando is one of these Gold Cup warriors that we just talked about. Oh, that's true, but he didn't play in all those games. Remember that in the right. 20th and where he Eddie had the Johnson, extra he got w? For EJ, yeah. I'm a I'm gonna go with Zardes. This was another close one. Of course, I'm only gonna give you a close one. Wando is at 34 and Zardes is at 31. Are you looking at I'm gonna go edit Wikipedia right now. <laughs> uh, I just saved it to PDF. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's go with DeAndre Yedlin. And Matt Beasler. Beasler. Yeah. See, this is a tr- this shouldn't be a tricky one because the only reason I would give you these two guys is if DeAndre Yedlin was ahead, and he's ahead by four on Beasler, thirty nine to thirty five. <laughs> Isn't that pretty shocking? DeAndre Yedlin already has thirty five caps. Yeah, Beasler came in so late. It, it was the weird, and it was. I mean, it's easy to forget how like 
how now I'm going to try and redeem myself. Like, hey guys, I actually do kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, you remember how shocking it was when Klinsman uh, was just suddenly like, "All right, well now Beasley and Gonzalez are the starters," and we're like, "What? Who? Like, what? Why? Okay, okay." <laughs> yep, yep. So I mean, I think it's because you know Yedlin has been in the in the situation for so long, in the picture for so long that yeah, okay, yeah. all right, all right. Um, let's go. Can we go to like get one right. I only have two more. Okay. Steve Birnbaum or Darlington Nagby? Birnbaum. Birnbaum no. has seven. Nagby has eight. Ten. Ten. Yep. Uh, he, he racked up all those stub appearances during this tournament. I think he had three appearances overall in this tournament. So that's the separator right there. I really hope I get one. Okay. Final one. Uh, if you, okay. All right. Final one. Fabian Johnson or Graham Zuzzi? Oh, man. This is also the one that's not the closest of all the ones that I've given you. This is the one with the difference is the farthest apart. I feel like Zussi broke out a January camp and Johnson... Uh, I'm going to go with Johnson. This, this, is, this is a hard <laughs> one because they are actually only eight months apart in age, too. Graham Zussi has 40 caps and Fabian Johnson has 49 Oh, so I got that one. You got that one. You did. You kinda, you, you, okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't keeping track of whether you had been getting these right or not, but was that the first one you got right? No, I got all, I got all of them. How many did you have? Uh, five. You got five. Yeah, I had four, I had four or five. Oh, congratulations on that. Well, I knew you were going to... I felt dumb even playing this game because I knew it was going to be far too easy for you. <laughs> um, I'm going to be calling into the show on Friday and letting Dotton make fun of you when you get these wrong again. <laughs> all right, John, I'm going to hit stop on this. Thanks for, uh, thanks for playing the game. Hey, no problem. Any, I, was, I just want to mention, Richard, especially if people listen to this part, it was big of me to come on this show. I don't usually like to brag, but it was big of me to come on because the last time I saw you in person, you were just telling me how old I looked. <laughs> this is true. Well, yeah. I, I want to say I was doing it ironically, but you just looked like Copa America was taking its toll on you. It was like the second game. <laughs> it, was, it, was the third, it was the third Mexico game. When was it? The second or third? It was. It was, from, the, it was I had covered a friendly. Jamaica. So it was second. third for you. And you, yeah. would, and you had stayed basically in the southwest quarter of the United States, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, John and I saw each other at the Rolls Bowl. It was a bit of a surprise to see each other, although we probably should have figured that we were going to be at the game. But it was for Mexico-Jamaica. Uh, what was it, like 78,000 people uh, chanting? It's the biggest crowd that Mexico played in front of uh, in, the, in, the, in the tournament. Yeah, so it's kind of scary for somebody that's never been to Azteca to have 78,000 people doing that infamous chant together. That was a wake-up call. Um, we don't have to. We can we can wrap this up if you want to. But you were in the earthquake in the Rose Bowl. I was in the earthquake. Yeah. Um, so for people that don't know, there was a. I don't remember the magnitude of it, but there was an earthquake in Southern California early that morning, and I was the last person in the press box at the Rose Bowl. And the Rose Bowl's a hundred and twenty year old stadium, and the press and box. Enormous. Yeah, the press box is like what eight, twelve stories off the ground yeah. or something like that. Yeah. That was easily the scariest earthquake I've ever been through. Even though there, it wasn't a big earthquake by California standards, but basically, I was I was on stilts during the earthquake, so <laughs> that that was kind of scary. And I, I actually was on stilts practicing uh, my <laughs> my tailgating routine, but uh, hey, I, I do want to ask you this question, and this is not fun, a fun question, but it seems like <laughs> yeah, it seems like to me uh, in the MLS games and the other games for Copa I've covered since the Copa started that the chant is spreading. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, it, and and it was picked up by Colombian fans during this tournament. Like they were absolutely yelling it during the semifinal. Where I had never, I've covered a couple of different Colombia games before and never heard it. Um, yeah, it is. The chant is spreading. I have a, a good Mexican friend who put out a tweet the other day and said something like, uh, you know, sarcastically saying like, ah, what what a gift to the world we left them at this tournament. Um, yeah, I wonder if that's going to be the legacy of this because you know. Mexico hasn't been the only country that has done this chant, but definitely it seemed like the prevalence of the Mexican fans doing this gave Colombian fans, Argentine fans. Um, I didn't hear it from Chilean fans, but I I did hear. There's just uh, not that many Chilean fans, but, yeah. but you know, well, maybe we'll definitely, give them the benefit of the doubt. Nice job, every, every Argentina game I was at, uh, they did it, uh, which was ended up being three Argentina games, I think. Um, and then I heard it at the Sounders game this weekend, and then it was at uh, reportedly really? at the San Jose Los Angeles Galaxy game this weekend. The 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 commonality between the Seattle game and the San Jose game is that Seattle had opened up their full stadium, so they had more people than usual, and then San Jose was playing at Stanford. And I wonder if once you get beyond that core MLS crowd, the next layer of people that are coming in are going to be more likely to take these traditions that uh, we haven't seen very much at MLS stadiums and incorporate them. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they do it in Dallas, and uh, Saitzi and Gonzalez have both... I, I'm not sure if Gonzalez has, but I, I just... You know, Sites for sure has has put out a tweet saying like, "Hey, this is a good idea not to do this. Please stop doing this." You know, I don't. I I do think it's a little unfair that the home because the Mexican goalkeepers are in the PSA. I don't. I'm not sure why the the home goalkeepers have to be the one that's like, "Hey guys, I know you yell this at my counterpart, but like you just stop. Like we could probably put everyone on the team out there, but for some yeah. reason we've we've seemed to decide that it's a responsibility of the home team's goalkeepers to uh, to tell you to stop yelling that. So uh, yeah, I I, I think we're reaching a moment here where the MLS teams and players and fans, uh, the fan groups at these stadiums are going to have to kind of walk the walk because it seems like maybe a little bit of the box has been opened here and this is starting to seep out. But then we're starting to hear things like you're telling me now that they've been they're doing it at fc get dallas games and talking to people at galaxy games they do it at galaxy games and i had just forgotten about it and i think the thing that makes me frustrated and i've yeah. tweeted about this is that people have used this as a stick to hit mexican soccer with for a while yeah. and now the more we talk about it the more hypocritical it just becomes it just right seems. i know i mean obviously i know many people in the mexican soccer community and and you know views differ views differ and and that's that's just where we're at um but a lot of people I know said, you know, if I believed that the American fans that I see being concerned about this, you know, wanting to to talk about this, making fun of of fans about this, uh, if I believed that their intentions were to eradicate the chant, that'd be one thing. But but the motives seem to be, yeah, haha, Mexico, you are backwards, or yeah. you are you are homophobic, or you are whatever. And it's like, you know, yeah, can can you really let let he without sin cast the first stone? You know, at some games I've been to, okay, they don't yell a Spanish word, but they say, you know, what the YSA chant. So like, you know, I look, I, I would just appreciate if everyone was civil to each other, but uh, it doesn't seem like that's where we're at right now. Well, if you're not going to be civil, at least don't be outright hypocritical about things. But the thing about, as you mentioned, like the thing about the the chant spreading, I think at the Copa is that it's it was so powerful because the stadiums have so many Mexican yeah. fans, and that's just what that's just for so long that's been what they've done mm-hmm. for so long that's been the tradition. So you're not going to stop it with an ad. You're not going to stop it with a tweet. You know, it's going to take a long term cultural change, and it might take even more serious things you know the mexican players multiple players have said i don't have a problem with this okay thanks a lot man you're not helping but then said but 
you know, <laughs> if FIFA hands us an, a closed stadium ban, you know, if FIFA makes us play a qualifier behind closed doors, you know, you better believe we're going to have a problem with that because, you know, the Azteca is one of the biggest, you know, resources we can leverage as far as, as you know, making a home field advantage, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it, it, it's up to the fans, right? Like, change it or don't, but eventually, you know, bad things are going to happen to your team if you don't stop uh, chanting that. No matter if you believe that it's, you know, right or wrong, FIFA has clearly decided, you know, this is not something that we want to happen at at soccer games, and they're going to be able to kind of legislate that. So Yeah, well, credit to San Jose, who immediately released a statement and indicated they're going to do everything that they can to stop it, which I assume means if people do this in the stadium, they're eventually going to get kicked out of games. And that's kind of what needs to happen. There needs to be some self-policing. But more than anything, this moment is an opportunity for American soccer culture to stop turning to Mexico and pointing fingers and take care of your own business on this. So maybe we can have a bit of a reprieve of Americans trying to tell Mexicans what to do. Because understandably, Mexicans don't take too kindly to that because there's a bit of a history of that that isn't too too pretty. (laughs) No, I mean, and and it is one of those things where like, you know, people, oh, like, FIFA has it out for us. Like, nah, you know, they're also finding Chile and Croatia and these other countries whenever right. these things happen. It gets publicized because it's your team that's being affected and you hear about it, you know. So, like like you said, Richard, you know, there's other things that happen that, that are not good that FIFA cracks down on, you know. But, look, do you really want, I don't know, do you really want to be lumped in with the, like, oh, this, and these fans gave a Nazi salute. Like, yeah. No, I don't know. Yeah, the the equivalency that people use to enable their own behaviors is just deflecting. It's like, no, just stop and let's take care of our own here now. Uh, This problem is now clearly spreading into MLS. So MLS fans and U.S. soccer fans get their chance to kind of put up or shut up. For so long, you've said Mexico needs to do something about it. Well, guess what? Why don't you provide an example? Because now you have the problem, too. All right, John. I will. Talk well, what a happy to- note, Richard. <laughs> I'll talk to you again soon. We need to figure out something to do regularly on Liga MEX because I want to keep following that league as much as I do, but a lot of the knowledge I get and the context I get on stuff is from you, so hopefully we can continue talking about that. Yeah, and let's play some impossible game as well, where we test like you know which team had more titles and you know which team had more wins in 1953, Morelia or Chivas. I'm going to give you players full names, full four four name names. And you're going to have to tell me what they're called on broadcasts. <laughs> I'll just repeat the four, four names back to you. <laughs> no, that's the impossible name. It's like, oh, I, I guess Chewy? I, I don't know. I'll just, take it, I'll just go with the law of averages here. Actually, so Tecatito is like, he doesn't really like that, I don't think. And so yeah. they started to call him Chewy, which is like a nickname for Jesus. So, yeah, now it's either Jesus Manuel Corona, Tecatito, Chewy. It could be like, and actually, I heard someone call him just straight up Tecate. Like, ah, oh, congrats, you've graduated from Tecatito to like a grown man. Now you're just a Takate. Yeah, the That's next time, better. I think we're we're running long here, but the next time we're on the show, I think people don't really know the origins of the Tecatito name, and they'll be probably surprised at how cynical it is. So that might be good to come uh, to <laughs> talk about the next time you're on the show. But anyways, John, thanks for taking some time, man. My pleasure. If you want to get in touch with the show, look up our page on SoundCloud.com. We're really trying to funnel everybody there. And if you leave a comment on one of the podcasts, I guarantee you I will respond to it. If you don't want to go to SoundCloud, hit me up on Twitter at at Richard Farley, and I'll be sure to get back to you and answer your feedback about these early shows. And if you want to be on the show, if you're one of my friends out there that I've met over the years that's still covering these games, just drop me a DM and drop me an email. We can get you on the show as soon as possible. The whole point of all this is to talk to you some more. We get a few listeners along the way, the more the merrier.
Both songs that you heard on this podcast are available at freemusicarchive.org, where you can get all kinds of free music for your audio projects. The opening song is by a band called Monk Turner, and it's part of this huge rock opera based on Greek gods. It's Zeus's song, and it's called Oh Yes You Will. And then the song you're hearing under my words right now, it's from Tigerberry. It's called Get Out DCV. Pretty emo stuff. 